Hello, I'm Gareth. Welcome to Somewhere on Earth. And we're here to give you your regular dose of technology from around the world. I'm not alone. We have the excellent Galen Boddington here today. Hello, Galen. How are Hello, you? Hello, Gareth. Really, really happy to be here with you. Yes. Marvellous. Settling into this new groove well. Absolutely. <laughs> and we great. can keep our chatting going and cross over on all our new ideas and the things that are shocking us and the things that are positive. We sure can. And uh, were you rocking with my very casual, hey, it's Gareth. And, you know, just the first name only. It's very podcasty just to give your first name, isn't it? Oh, it, it? is. That's true. <laughs> just, so. I'm so used to saying it's Gareth Mitchell. But yeah, I'm happy to do first names. Makes it more friendly. Here it's we a are. Podcast. So it is. Well, should we just crack on with it then? Yes, we should, because we've got such a lot to get through. There's quite a bit to get through. Let's do it. And coming up on this edition... Bringing breast examinations to more women and indeed men. It can be a problem for men as well, breast cancer. Uh, Doing that more conveniently thanks to some novel robotics. We'll tell you about that. And we're checking out a new report on internet freedoms and how AI is compromising those freedoms. It's all right here on the Somewhere on Earth podcast. First up then... You're off to the pharmacy and you're going to get some headache pills maybe or pick up that prescription. Oh, and by the way, don't forget the breast examination. Yes, a new device is promising to revolutionise how women monitor their breast health by bringing automated clinical breast examinations to clinics and pharmacies without women always having to slap off to the hospital or the local doctor's clinic. So, Galen, just to get us started on this, we're going to hear about the tech in a moment, but just tell us what goes on in one of these breast examinations, i.e. the non-robotic kind. There are lots of technologies already used, like mammography, ultrasound, MRI, and also the the down-to-earth clinical breast examination, which is a hands-on manipulation by the health practitioner. But for me, I actually, at the moment, my breast examinations, in London at least, I go to a hospital and into a room which has a big machine with flat steel plates at chest level. And you're kind of pushed in to stand there and hold in the right position into this machine. And the nurse comes and she squeezes one breast in between and tightens up the plates like a clamp, tighter and tighter and tighter. And getting pressure coming from all sides of the breast, flattening the breast in several planes, yeah. And it is quite painful, to be honest. And it's quite undignified and awkward, yeah. But of course, then she leaves the room and they do the clicks and whatever it is that's happening in that machine because it's there's lots of different machines um and that is a first level examination yeah and um at that first level other than the nurse fitting you into this very non-ergonomic thing it's a complete opposite to the shape of a breast i've always wondered about this yeah yeah it is it is like a modern medieval clamping thing but there's no human touch other than the nurse putting you into the right position. Yeah. It's not like you are manipulated or pushed around. And I have wondered why it was not more ergonomic. I shaped to the breast, but I think our interview today does clarify some of that, actually. Yeah, all right. That'll be interesting. In fact, one of the points our guests make on the interview is how this procedure hasn't been particularly, um, 
really updated for quite some time. No, it no. seems like for a very long time. So it might be due for a little bit of a, a rethink. Um, so we'll hear about the the pros and maybe the cons of this automated approach. We're going to get your views as we go along, Galen, as well. And so what we're talking about here is a robotic manipulator. It's been designed by a team at the University of Bristol in the UK. And the researchers are based at the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. And they've also been working with some people at Imperial College London who have uh, helped them with the sensors, that side of the thing. So the people at Bristol, they're a mix of postgrads and undergrads. So we're excited about this story on many levels, not least of which it's great to have early career researchers who are getting into the spotlight here. Um, so supervising them is lecturer Dr. Antonia Semenaki, and uh, we're going to hear from her. But we're actually going to start with the lead author. He is one of these early career researchers, and he's George Jenkinson. So what we've created is kind of a, a two-part system. One is this soft uh, variable stiffness tactile pressure sensor. So this is a sensor that's designed to interact comfortably and uh, safely, you know, physically with people because it's soft and made of, um, well, of course, safe materials. And the other part is a platform. So we, we usually refer to things like this as a, as a manipulator, but it's basically a robotic platform that's capable of holding um, the one that we've actually made is capable of holding five sensors, and we've shown that it can manipulate or control the sensors in such a way that it can cover a, um, a realistic breast morphology. So we, we, we work with what we call phantom breasts, which are basically like a, a breast made of silicone rubber that's modelled after a uh, cast taken from a volunteer, and that was um, donated to us from our partners who we're working with on this project at Imperial. So we, we basically, we have those two bits of the system. We have the sensor and we have the manipulator. And we, of course, mount the sensors to the manipulator. And yeah, using that system, we can carry out a, you know, this is kind of next on our list. Using our system, we can, we can carry out a physical palpation examination and get some results that we hope will one day be medically useful. So the device consists of a, like a, a frame almost that the, woman sits at and or, or stands at and then they kind of insert their breast don't they into the, the into the cavity into you know where the device is can you tell me a bit more about what it looks like we're a research lab in university so of course most of the things that we put out aren't immediately ready to be used by the participants or the users but we've got some concept art of how we imagine the device to eventually look and that's the idea yeah we want to make something that's kind of approachable and easy to use and the way that we're imagining it so far is that the woman could, um, uh, in our illustrations, perhaps, or the user, I should say, could be, you know, leaning forward and doing something else, like reading a book or on their phone or something while the examination is going on. Of course, part of that is this is subject to how effective the examination is going to be, because I, the way clinical breast examinations are performed by professional people at the moment is they nearly always have the woman lying or the person lying on their back, because this is just through practice has shown to be the most effective way to do it. So if we, it might be that in the end we come up with something and we say, okay, actually we need to have this person lying in the back. But at the moment, the thought is that you can sort of lean forward, you can sit down and lean and be comfortable. Presumably because it has gravity on your side and that helps in this context. 
Potentially, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, of course. Um, so give us a sense of what is actually going on, because we're talking about palpating the breast, aren't we? The, the breast tissue, as a clinician would do in an exam. So just tell me about that, that process, what a clinician does, and then indeed how your machine, the robotic version, is doing the equivalent thing. Yeah. So we're, one of the things that's quite interesting about this as a sort of space or as a service to investigate is that this is, um, you know, clinical breast examinations using a hand, a physician or, or a doctor of some sort using their hand. That's not, that's not new. And that hasn't really, um, it, there's been no real technological or, or practical change to it for a very long time. So it's, there are standardized standardizations, perhaps within a hospital or within a practice in the way that people perform these examinations. Generally, people say, uh, you know, I'm no trained expert, but generally the, the trained experts tell us that they do the palpation with sort of the outside of their hand that do a sort of press and drag motion. And they follow a certain sort of um, path, if you like, around the breast to make sure that they cover the whole area. But the precise guidelines of how to do this aren't that well established. And there's wide reports in medical professionals' confidence in doing this and in the kind of quality of results they're getting. So one thing that we are looking to do is standardize this so if we have some sort of objective or at least repeatable method of doing a, a breast examination i.e by robotics then we can assess in earnest how useful these kind of examinations actually are so that there, there's a degree of transfer from how the professionals do it to this robot we're hopeful that we can you know discover some new uh, methods of doing it or you know the way that's most efficient and effective a big part of the challenge here, presumably, is getting the machine to press with the same kind of dexterity and gentleness, I suppose, as a human clinical examiner. That is correct. This is a huge challenge. And our conversations with public contributors who gave us a lot of feedback on the current um, examination methods did stress this. They stressed the fact that uh, current procedures, current ways of examinations can be very painful. So we want, from one side, to limit this, to make sure that our platform will be safe and gentle and comfortable. But we also want to make sure that we press enough, we have enough force to make sure that we actually have an accuracy in detecting whatever might be there. So the good news is that the sensors that we have uh, created in this project, and uh, there are two of those sensors, they both have what we call a tunable range of sensitivity. So they are able to inflate and deflate. And by doing that, we are able to change the range that it senses. It can sense some lump at the surface of the breast, but it can also sense something that is deeper in the tissue. And that is where the innovation of those sensors lies, really, because this is not what you often find in prior research. Yes, because there are five... Arms, I suppose, like robot arms, for want of a better description, which makes it sound all very mechanical and horrible. But at the end of each one is a fingertip, effectively. But that's a little inflatable sack, isn't it? That's the key thing. It's a soft sack that, as you say, inflates and deflates as it makes contact with the breast. Yes, that's, that's right. And, and the fact that we have five or three or seven f uh, fingers there is what will help optimize this examination method because it can be faster because it's not just one fingertip, it's more. 
And a very uh, good analogy that I uh, often refer to is the fact that when you want to create a robot that will wash your dishes, you're not going to make a humanoid robot that stands next to your sink and washes the dishes. You're going to make a dishwasher. So we want to learn from the experts. We want to see what forces and what movements they are applying when they examine a patient. But we want to learn from that and apply it in a different way that makes sense for a robotic device. George, as well as applying the appropriate force to the breast, of course, crucially, there's a sensing function, isn't there? This thing is able to discern if it's touching a lump or some soft tissue, whatever. How does it even know what it's pressing against? Yeah, so as Antonia said, there are two sensors that we've developed as part of this project. One of the uniting things between the two is, as she said, we have this change in stiffness that we control using pneumatics. So basically blowing up or deflating curve like you do with a balloon, right? Balloons are quite soft and that's not part to part, but then they're quite hard. So the way that they, the two sensors sense and know what's going on is quite different, although they have some commonalities. So they both use a camera. And one of the advantages of using a camera is that we don't really have to push for the innovation, right? Over the last 15 years or so, cameras have been becoming really, really good, really sensitive and really small because of smartphones. So they exist and they're cheap and they're, and they're great. So the way that the first sensor that has been developed as part of this project works borrows a lot from another sensor that we, that we have at the lab called the TAC tip. And that essentially films the inside of the membrane. So if you imagine you're, you have a, a camera inside this balloon that, that, that we're imagining, then when this touches something from the outside, the balloon sort of indents at that particular place. So you can, you just by looking at the inside, you can see where what's being touched. And if you do a few practice runs, then you can begin to characterize maybe how deep or how close or how big the indentation is. You can get an idea of force from that. And the other sensor that I've worked mostly with, we have, if you imagine, it's sort of like a, a series of channels. So, so there are a number of pits just inside the elastic membrane. And these are these are sort of liquid-filled cavities. And these are coupled by tubing to another location so that you have, when the membrane itself is touched, the liquid moves. And along the tubing somewhere, you can see this movement, right? So if you're looking at the tube, you're just seeing a liquid, bit of liquid go up and down. And you know that that bit of liquid going up and down is tightly coupled or is touching a bit of the membrane at the other end. You can say, okay, that bit, that piece of the membrane is being touched right now. And then if it only moves a tiny bit, the contact is very soft. If it moves a lot, then the contact is with a high force. Do you anticipate this kind of one day replacing the clinician? Or is this more of a companion for the clinician? And of course, bringing this kind of examination to more women in more places more conveniently? So yes, this is definitely not going to replace the clinician. It is very important to keep the clinician as their expertise and input is invaluable. This is a more of a complementary approach to the clinician and it's in fact there to make clinicians' life easier and patients' um, outcomes better. That is Antonia Semenaki, who leads the Dexterous Manipulation and Wearable Robotics Group over there in Bristol. And of course, you heard there from George Jenkinson, the PhD student who is the lead author on all that research. Let's get some commentary and analysis from Glenn Boddington. We heard that graphic description there of the uh, of what it's like going for these examinations. What about, I mean, would you want to have the, the robot manipulation? Do you like the sound of it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? 
I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI Podcast, and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan Brand. My next move, helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. I do actually, because um, it's it's definitely got a slightly more human touch. Ironically. <laughs> sensitivity. Yeah, ironically, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's interesting because I've worked a lot with robots and touch and um, uh, a project called The Blind Robot that we did about eight, ten years ago, where, which was about the the kind of uncanny valley of being touched by a robot. Yeah. And this is a health discussion. It is a health discussion. It was a big discussion in Japan from the early 2000s and then it started to come across the world, yeah. And this very weird thing that people have like, oh, I'm not sure I want to be touched by a robot, let alone treated by a robot. But in fact, I think we're much more used to that today. And this sounds like a much more deeper tissue solution and it gives you the privacy. It takes away from being touched by humans, which unfortunately can be abusive in these scenarios and are overdone, overfrequent, mm-hmm. these tests, yeah. But let's not underestimate, it's a massive issue, breast cancer worldwide. And in 2020, I think it was 2.3 million cases of breast cancer across the world, both sexes, all age groups. And that's about 12% of all cancers, Yeah. So, of course, what's very important is early detection because then you've got a 90% survival rate. But in so many places, we have a very high amount of of breast cancer in Europe, Australasia, North America, but mortality is higher in other parts of the world because there's less early detection. So the more that something like this could be out and about, get to remote places, maybe be flat-packed with a few boxes with it and very easy to install and put up and gives women the privacy and the chance to just go and get it done. Yeah, I think that's a very, very positive output for early detection scenarios. Yeah, sure. I, I loved uh, George's description of how they actually do the, the sensing. So I was wondering, how does this thing gauge the, the pressure? But using, I, I thought it would have some, you know, kind of material that changed its conductance or something according to how hard it was pressed. But this is actually an optical sensor, a camera basically within one of these balloon sacks. No, it's very clever, isn't it? Really yeah. clever. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it can infer the amount of pressure from the amount of flexing from as filmed or as imaged from the inside of the balloon. And, and didn't you just love it when, Antonio said something like, you know, if, you, if you're talking about a robot to do dishes, you don't just get like a, a humanoid robot thing that comes and stands at your sink. You get a dishwasher. Yes, it doesn't yeah, need to yeah. look like a human doctor in this case. I thought that was a great point. I'm, that's a quote I'm going to steal. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a very good point too. And um, the fact that you could go and go into a room on your own and, you know, deal with it one breast by breast, you know, actually, and like like they mentioned, maybe, you know, do some text to your friends at the same time or listen to some music or something. It doesn't take so long. 
that for me sounds much better than being squashed between steel plates or being, you know, manipulated by human hands. Actually, you, you could put some VR on, couldn't you? Some like VR yes. goggles or something yeah, like yeah. that. You would well, love it'd that. It'd be immersion room. Oh, exactly. Immersion room with yeah, lots of Mrs. wonderful. Mrs. Virtual presence in the room here. You'd love that. I, mean, I don't mean you're a virtual presence. I just mean that's your thing. Yes, oh, yes. Goodness me. I can tie myself in knots. Right before I go into even more of a spiral, whatever. Um, uh, let's move on. Galen, thank you very much. All right, now let's talk about internet freedom. It's a bit of a change of subject because a report just out says that AI is hindering more than it's helping in some parts of the world when it comes to internet freedoms. Now this matters because oppressive governments are getting better and better at using AI to automate censorship and then churn out tons and tons of mis and disinformation basically to swamp out any dissent online. And uh, regulation isn't exactly doing as much as it could do to keep up. That's all according to a report from Freedom House. They're an internet freedoms body based in Washington. And uh, journalist Emma Willicott has just written about it all for uh, Forbes. And she's right here. Hello, Emma. Welcome to Somewhere on Earth. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Right, so let's uh, get into how AI is killing internet freedoms. Because just that thought alone, Emma, I'll be honest, was a bit counterintuitive to me. I thought, oh, we're always hearing this is all about democratising people's voices and so on. Not so, says this report, and indeed you. Well, the thing, the point is that these tools can work both ways. Um, so just as they're very productive um, for you know, people, you know, students wanting to write essays or whatever, uh, governments can use them to uh, produce disinformation incredibly quickly. And they can also use AI tools to filter out the sort of content that they don't like. Um, and that's expanding more and more around the world. Uh, China is a particularly bad offender but uh, there's there's plenty of countries trying to do the same thing I, yeah, I had a, fi- a feeling that China would pop up in this conversation and uh, Iran presumably um, <laughs> but but then it's there other countries that abuse their citizens through uh, abusing internet freedoms are available aren't there and there are more frankly than I thought as well in this report Yes, absolutely. There's um, 22 countries out out of the 70 that Freedom House looked at have laws that require internet platforms to to use AI to automatically remove the you know content that they don't like for various reasons. Um, and um, some of sometimes these are fairly straightforward tools, but sometimes they're developing their own really quite sophisticated ones. Right. So, Glenn, it's not the most cheerful bit of bedtime reading you've ever done, is it, going through this report? No. Um, it's a it's a very difficult conundrum at the moment because we've got, like um, Emma said, this, this thing that could be absolutely amazingly supportive and assistive, but at the same time is like the other side of a coin is that it could do lot what well, it is doing harm, lots of harm in different places. And it's the same issue as we're talking about, about the release of, you know, open source was such a utopic, wonderful thing. And yet now, of course, because it's all been open source is how it's starting to get misused. Yes. So double coin things. What I think is really interesting is how on earth we get to any kind of global regulation. And I'd like um, to hear from Emma more about that, because we haven't even managed that for nuclear 
issues or for climate change. We know that these constant fragmented global regulation debates that, you know, the UN is always trying to pull together, but is constantly seen as failing on it. And yet, is it the UN? We know we don't know, you know, it's everybody really. But Emma, do you ever think there's any possibility of global regulation here? That's like a big question and a bit naive, but... Well, I'd say global regulation is fairly unlikely. The, the, the countries where it's most needed are the ones least likely to uh, sign yeah. up for, for any sort of regulation. But there is a fair bit of progress being made. Um, in Europe, particularly, um, they're looking at a, an EU AI Act, uh, which has sort of certain parallels with GDPR in a way, um, in that it looks at different areas of technology, different uses of the technology, and then obliges companies to behave in certain ways based on the perceived level of risk. So there's AI in political campaigning, chatbots, um, deep fake, all that sort of thing. They're looking at similar measures in the US, but rather further behind. Um, there's an executive order from, from President Biden, um, sort of going through at the moment, I suppose, uh, that um, has very similar provisions, really. But a lot of it is uh, provisions against sort of day-to-day problems like um, discrimination via algorithms, that sort of thing, and and notifying people of how their data is being used, whatever. Uh, To an extent, yeah, governments are rather scrabbling around to work out how on earth to deal with this. It's all happening terribly quickly. Well, I mean, this is the thing. It's it's just that age-old story, isn't it? That it's just where the technology is moving quicker than the regulation and the governance can Always, keep up. Always, yeah, than governments can keep up. And, and if they want to, some, like I was saying, yeah. some of them don't want <laughs> to keep up anyway. They so do not want to and, keep up um, And police systems too, of course, you know, that just seem to go ahead and use them possibly with e- without even necessarily... Um, having discussed it with their governments, yeah, so we know. But what about regulation AIs? I mean, I know that, for example, AI-based tools and platforms, you know, can be fact-checked and journalists can use that kind of fact-checking AI and source-checking AIs and um, source verification. And I was just been in a few debates really about recently about the possibility of AI being self-regulating, having its own built-in mechanisms to setting its own rules and benchmarks and limiting behaviour of itself, but also possibly other AIs. I'm wondering, Gareth, if you've got any Emma. I'm really fascinated by this, yeah. Well, was, <laughs> well, as you were saying all that, I was thinking, like, probably not amazingly seriously, but has anybody actually tried asking ChatGPT to draft some global <laughs> regulation and then indeed, like, an implementation and enforcement strategy? Or would even ChatGPT say, this just won't work at the global level, back off, this is rubbish? <laughs> I don't know, Emma... Well, in the same way as uh, you can use ChatGPT to detect AI-written content, uh, you can use AI tools to detect other AI-produced content. Um, so we've got um, there's, a, there's, there's a project called Geneva, um, produced by the Internet Freedom Fund, that trains trains algorithms to detect censorship system. Um, obviously, it can't then do anything to stop them. But what it can at least do is is alert journalists, researchers, 
whoever to the fact that this is actually going on. And there are there are other tools as well that, that do much the same thing. There's one called Tunnel Bear, um, another one called Siphon. Uh, so detecting it isn't isn't necessarily that difficult, but um, obviously there's a limit to to what you can do to restrict what's happening in other countries. So are there other ways, potential ways, that AI could be part of the solution? We've talked all about AI causing all these problems and wreaking havoc, but I mean, can it help with tools to help people, I suppose, regain their voice, have an opportunity to circumvent censorship, any of those kinds of things, Emma? And to be honest, avoiding censorship is is um, more about finding ways to communicate where where your government can't spy on you. So things like virtual private networks, you know, maybe Elon Musk's Starlink, that sort of thing, actual private channels of communication. So out of this report, we read the usual suspects, um, Iran and China don't come out particularly well from it. So what about on the good side, though, Emma? Are there any countries that are exemplars of uh, sorting all this out? Iceland ranked as the best country for internet. Oh, Iceland's in good at everything. Yeah, and that's five years running. <laughs> yeah. they've, they've held that position. Um, okay. Estonia does very well too. They're, they're oh, they're good at everything too. Yeah. yeah, they're an incredibly digital society. So um, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a huge thing for them to try, try and get this stuff right. Yeah, no, no surprise with those two. Were there any that might have surprised you possibly, Emma? I mean, maybe not. And there's quite a few countries listed in the report anyway, but... Uh, you know, well, there are, any, any surprises of any kind from the report? Um, the thing I tend to notice is uh, just how many very reasonable countries are also using AI um, and internet censorship in, in one form or another, and uh, obviously not to the same degree. But basically, if you think about it, most most governments do this. Um, you know, there's a French bill going through at the moment requiring browsers to block particular websites. Uh, we have it in, in most European countries and in the US in terms of sort of blocking um, terrorist con- content or child sexual abuse material, for instance. And uh, again, you know, even in the UK, we've got things like um, the online safety bill going through the investigative powers bill. And if they, they require various platforms to uh, monitor, try and monitor and use AI tools to, to filter out um, what the government is, has deemed inappropriate. Yeah, all right, Emma. So, so what about you getting back here in London, around the table with me as well? Parting thoughts from you, if any. I do think we have to find a way to um, be able to use AI to detect the the um, problems coming. Even like, as Emma says, we can't then necessarily, they can't stop it. But I think this pattern recognition of the misuse of AI needs to be um, grown. And it will grow, of course it will grow, because actually the feedback that's coming through across time will provide those AIs with indications of where areas of concern happen or where to look more, etc., you know. And I still think, and it was very interesting, I think, in the computer science scene, this debate about, you know, could there be AI policemen who police AIs? I'd I'd like to see that debate going deeper and further, yeah. And I also think that, you know, mentioning Iceland and Estonia, it would be really great to have a lot of detail put in front of us as, as those two countries and others maybe as models, yeah. But actually then, you know, not just our politicians, et cetera, but that uh, us 
as individuals and humans can actually go, well, that would be a good idea if we did do that. That would work here and we could try that. And I would do that. And I am prepared to make that effort. Yeah. The debate needs to be put much more out in public and on the table for us all to come up with solutions. Yeah. Learning from the people who do it well and indeed those who, who do it badly. And so that all of us can, I suppose, ultimately make the world a better place, he said, uh, mildly naively there at the end. Um, I think we'll leave it there. Emma Willicott, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Marvellous. And uh, Glenn Boddington, I've enjoyed very much um, finding my feet and our feet on this brand new podcast <laughs> with you here. I think uh, it's great. It's, yeah, we're having, we're having fun. And um, we want to involve our dear, lovely uh, listeners, uh, mainly because, hey, folks, I'll be honest, we've launched a podcast here. We've put so much effort into even you hearing this it's there are lots of moving cogs and wheels to to even make this something that pops up on your de- listening device whatever listening device <laughs> a gramophone or something so um yeah please tell your friends uh, listen to us support us and we will love you very much uh, you can get in touch via hello at somewhere on earth.co that's hello at somewhere on earth.co and on whatsapp as well it's um, UK code 44, then 7486 329 484. Shall we have a bet on how long it takes me to learn that? <laughs> so I don't, I don't have to keep reading it out. Let's see. I'll, I'll get it off by heart at some point. Um, so that's, uh, do you know any tattoo parlours around here? I'll yes, we'll, we'll, we can in. do that yeah. straight after this show. And then if you the like. following day, they'll change the number and I'll feel <laughs> stupid. Uh, so anyway, let's do that one again. It's uh, code 44 7486 329 484. And uh, yeah, we just get in touch, tell us what you think, suggest some stories. Oh, and I'll tell you what, a voice memo would be nice. We like the hearing yeah, the listeners' yeah. voices. More of you, less of us. That'd be nice. Uh, so there we are. That'll do for now. Um, our sound editor today is the excellent uh, Keziah Wenham Kenyon, and audio is by Stevie Arnoldi, who's a senior producer at Lanson's Team Farner. And our editor, still sane after spending so much time putting all this together, is Anya Litterovich. Um, thanks, folks. That was lovely. See you next time. Lots of love. Bye bye. 